Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And as you're seated, as we turn now to this text of Scripture, I have a question for you. Uh, Something to, to just get us rolling in our message this morning. And it's this. Do you find that you as a human being, do you find that you tend to crave the praise of the people around you? Or am I alone? Is it just me? I, I found that in my life, ever since I was a kid, no matter what I put my hand to, whether it was my piano lessons and, and recitals, whether it was my sports camps and sports efforts, whether it was as I got older and was now in university and trying to succeed academically, uh, or even if I'm really honest, now as a pastor laboring in this church, that, that I want to be praised by other people. I want to be best. And even if I'm not the best, I want you to treat me like I'm the best. I want to be praised. Perhaps you can relate to that. Maybe you can relate to in your relationships with people, uh, in your friendships, in in your personal life, in various ways, the need to to compare yourself to others. The need to to be better than someone else, to receive praise maybe for your lifestyle, for your, uh, the clothing that you wear for uh, your style choices, for your lifestyle, for uh, your worth, for your status. Or maybe you find in your professional life that there's just this, this constant irritating impulse to always be seeking others' praise, to be comparing yourself to others, maybe from your, your boss or your coworkers that they would praise and celebrate you. See, I think whether we are the best or we aren't, whether we're quiet about it or we're not, the truth is each of us really wants to be praised by others. True? True? Okay, at least true for me. I'm getting me and three other people. And what this does to us is interesting. It breeds in our hearts this competitive, comparative orientation to others in this world. And that competitive and comparative orientation, it tends to cause problems. If you've noticed some of these problems, I'll, I'll describe a couple for you. This way of being in the world, wanting to be praised, comparing ourselves, being competitive, it can make it hard to genuinely celebrate somebody else's achievement. Have you felt that? When you, you see the person next to you and, and they're succeeding, you're like, man, they are, and, and I'm not. I should have been there. Right? They don't deserve to have that win. And then the jealousy starts coming in. Maybe you've realized the way that it makes you a judgmental and unwelcoming person. Because all of this comparison, all this desire to be praised, working in your heart, it actually forms your heart into the kind of person that then looks at everybody else around you and is constantly measuring and evaluating them. And if they don't measure up to your standards, well, you know what? They, they don't deserve my time. Right? They can get the hard pass. 
in relationship because they're not good enough. Have you noticed that this can make you a fragile person (laughs) where when you receive some critical feedback from somebody, it crushes you. It crushes you. You want so much to be praised that that having someone critique who you are because your whole worth as a human being is there, it destroys you in your soul. You, You can't handle it. It hurts you. Have you noticed that this comparison, this need to be best, this boasting, if you will, that it can make you greedy and selfish? Because it can make all of the generosity that you participate in in this world really not about the other person. It's actually about you. You're not an others-oriented person. You're a you-oriented person. And besides, there's not that much that you have, so you think. How could I give up the things that make me feel good to help someone else. It's a zero-sum game. I'm going to lose out. See, living for the praise of others isn't good for us or the people around us. And in a variety of ways, it actually takes a group of human beings and starts to divide them. It breaks up our relationships. And even if you can't relate to anything that I'm saying, well, first of all, I don't believe you if you say that to me. But even if you claim that you can't, we need to know that the, the people that Paul's writing to in the letter of 1 Corinthians could. The Corinthian church could relate to this. You see, the church Paul was writing to in Corinth was in a city where the only way to get ahead was to do better than other people and to be seen for doing better than other people, to be noticed for it, to have somebody notice you in comparison to others and to elevate you. There's actually this great quote from a New Testament scholar named Ben Witherington III, So clearly he's better than all of us because his name is the third. Um, He comments this about Corinth. He says, Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. Isn't that interesting? Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul's talking to the church in Corinth because the culture of that city was permeating the walls of the church. The church in Corinth was made up of people that wanted to be maximally Corinthian and minimally Christian. And all of this culture is coming in. It was causing division. Paul writes about this problem in verse 12. He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. The point is that they're boasting about themselves, comparing others to themselves to be better than those around them. And it was causing divisions. So in chapter one, as we've seen, we've gone now for a few sermons in this text. We've seen that Paul confronts them and he calls them to be united as a church. And he teaches them throughout this chapter about the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Why does he talk about the cross so much when the problem is division? Well, because the cross is the only end of human boasting that exists. The cross is what can stop our pride and humble us low and make a new humanity as recipients of grace. Why is that? Well, we saw last week it's because the cross appears foolish and weak and not worthy of being praised by anyone. After all, what sort of wise Greek person would would want to follow a a God who got himself killed? And what sort of Jewish person would want to follow a Messiah that was supposed to lead them for victory, but ended up crucified on a cross? It's foolish and it's weak. 
But this foolishness and weakness of God brings the salvation that no human wisdom or strength could into this world. And thereby it humbles us. God humiliates our pride and exposes the emptiness of our human boasting. Last week, the last verse we looked at was verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, I I share all of this because we need to understand when we come to our text this morning, what Paul's doing. What Paul's doing is he's locating this little section we're looking at in the context of what's come before, and he's really illustrating this foolishness and the weakness of God that is actually stronger than men's wisdom and stronger than men's strength. How? By in this section, using the Corinthian church as exhibit A of the foolish and weak things in the world that God has used. You want to see him at work? Look at yourselves. Look at the way God has used you. So we're going to look at two points this morning in this text. We're going to look at the shame of empty boasting and the glory of true boasting. So let me say this. If you're here this morning, some of this is resonating with you and you're realizing, you know what? Maybe my prideful orientation in my boasting, maybe it is causing some problems. Then listen, pay attention to what Paul says in this text because there's good news for people like you and I in this text. So we'll look together then at our first point, and I invite you to join with me in verse 26. Uh, Look at the shame of our empty boasting as we uh, read this text together. For consider your calling, brothers. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And notice how Paul uses the phrase, according to worldly standards here. He's saying, according to the ancient Roman way of evaluating persons and their worth in this world, you guys don't measure up. In ancient Rome, honor and shame was everything. You wanted to to gain honor. You wanted to avoid shame. And your way to greater honor was to climb the social ranks of what was happening in Roman society through political or social achievement, through intellectual achievement, to earn the praise of Roman society around you. That's what you're after. And Corinth was this interesting place because it was a city of new money in the ancient world. It was a meritocracy, not an aristocracy. And the good news meant that then you could come to Corinth and if you were a nobody and you had no money, if you had a good work ethic and some good business sense, you could find some wealth for yourself. You could attain some flourishing. The bad news was that because just because you had gained financial worth did not actually equal the status and the honor that you hungered for. Just because you had started to get some money doesn't actually mean that you had risen in the ranks of Roman society. And so when Paul writes verse 26, this church in Corinth, he's actually digging his fingers into their honor and status sore spot. He's poking his fingers into their wound, the thing that they're aware of. You know, some of us have made some money. Some of us have have come somewhere, but we still don't have that status and that honor that we're after. And Paul here says in verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You didn't have it. You didn't have it. I think that that for us today, 
We could imagine Paul talking to us in this room in a similar way. When we try to compare ourselves to others using the standards of this world, you can imagine Paul kind of coming up to you. You can imagine him, maybe if you're a student at UBC, right? And you're trying to prove your academic prowess. And you can imagine Paul saying, yeah, but it's UBC. It's not an Ivy League school. Yeah, but look, look at your actual test results. You're not that smart. You could imagine Paul talking to maybe someone here uh, in, in the congregation. If you love the beauty and, and the veneer of, of beauty that is in Vancouver, you follow all the social media accounts with all the best style and attractive people. You can imagine him looking at you and saying, yeah, but according to those standards, you're not that good looking. You're not. You can imagine Paul saying to, to you, if you just want to be athletically fit, right? And, you, and you're always in the gym. You're always whatever, doing your workouts. And Paul's like, yeah, but look at people that actually do this for a living. <laughs> you're not that good at it. You can imagine living for success. Perhaps if that's you, I, I want to just find success in this world. I want to rise to the tops of, of where I can be as a business person. And imagine Paul looking at you and saying, yeah, but you live in Vancouver. It's not New York City, friend. You see, Paul's reminding the Corinthians is, look, when God called you to himself and saved you, in the eyes of the world, using the comparison tools of ancient Rome, you weren't that great. You weren't. I mean, why would Paul tell them that? Like, way to kill the mood, Paul. I was enjoying the first part of this letter. <laughs> I'm not so sure I'm enjoying it anymore. Well, Paul tells them this to remind them of three things. Let me show them to you. First, look at verses 27 and 28. There Paul says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. He's talking about social nobodies. It's an interesting phraseology, but he's saying, he's, he's taking the things that are not, that is the nobodies of this world, to bring to nothing things that are. He's talking the somebodies, the nothings bringing to nothing the somebodies. Why did God save Corinthians? Corinthians who are nobodies. Well, the same reason he used a crucified Messiah to bring salvation to this world. He did it to shame the wise. He did it to shame the strong. You see, Christ City, when God chose each member of his church to begin breathing life into a world that is full of death, to show flourishing life in a world that was full of stagnation and death, he intentionally chose the nobodies. If God had a hockey team, right, he would have populated his hockey team on purpose with five foot nothing, 90 pound nerds. And he would have done it so that when he defeated the opponents, right, the, the people of this world boasting in their human wisdom and their human power, when he defeats them and does something that they could never do, when he trounces them like the Olympic women's team trounced Slovakia in 2010, 18 to zero, when he does it, it would be humiliating based on the team that he used to humiliate strength and wisdom of ourselves. Christ City, this is actually how God began his church in this world. His God chose the low born. 
He chose the foolish and the rejected for his purposes. We see this in the life of Jesus Christ. Because when when God came to earth, just stop for a second. This is what Christians believe. When God came to earth, became human to live here, he didn't dwell in a king's palace. He didn't do it to hobnob with the rich and those that were socially significant. Where was he born? In a feeding trough, in a poor village to poor parents. And who were his first worshipers? And like Christmas time, we remember the way that the first worshipers that come to adore this God, they were the social outcast par excellence, the shepherds, the nobodies. They lived with their sheep, right? They weren't getting home and having a good shower and cleaning up and smelling nice and being acceptable in society between shifts. These people lived in the hills. They smelt more like sheep than human beings. And they were God's first worshipers on earth. And his closest friends and his followers on earth, they didn't have social distinction. They were fishermen. They were socially despised tax collectors who'd made alliances with Rome that we hate. All those in Palestine would have hated Rome. He made friends with backwater rednecks from Palestine. But God chose these people. God chose these people to carry the message of a foolish cross through an ancient world that loves status and power and honor. And through these people, God began a revolution, the likes of, the likes of which the world has never seen. A revolution and a change in this world has been reverberating from then now into our lives 2,000 years later. Not with the all-star team, but with the 90-pound, five-foot-nothing nerds. And note that word. God chose them. God chose them and the Corinthians to accomplish his purpose. This is really good news for us. This is really, really good news for us. Let it land on you. Here again, who God chose. He said it three times in this verse. Verse 27, God chose what is foolish. Verse 27, again, God chose what is weak. God chose what is low and despised in this world. Verse 28, he did it to shame the strong, to shame the wise, to bring to nothing somebody's using nobody's. Christ said, he hear this good news. You know what this means for us? It's encouraging for us, I think, because it means that no matter who you are here this morning, God can use you. God purposes to use you for glory for the good of his kingdom, for something that will last for eternity. Not because you're so special, not because you, you're like, hey God, here's my resume of all the things that I've, I've done in my life. And it's amazing. I can really do something for you. No, no, he looks at us and he says, you know what? Even though I see who you really are and it's not nearly as good as you think it is, I want to use you for my glory. He loves to use small churches and small people to accomplish big things. That's good news for us. It's also convicting, I think, to us. Because it challenges us, who have we then been overlooking thinking that it's beneath God to use them? Who have we thought won't be able to measure up to the goodness of God, that won't be able to receive his grace? You know, God would never use that person. You know, God chooses the weak 
and the humble and the foolish to shame the wise and the strong. There's a second reason God chose these things. Look at verse 29. He says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So I'm really good at boasting. I'm really good at boasting. If there's anything in my life that, that I'm 2% or even, you know what, a half percent responsible for, I'm going to make sure you know about that 2% or that half percent. Right? So if I'm cooking a meal with my wife and Heather's like, hey, Brent, can you chop the carrots? And then someone comes over for dinner, like, you know, that was a pretty good meal. Well, <laughs> obviously it was a good meal. <laughs> right? I, I chopped the carrots. This is a pretty benign illustration. I could give you a lot of darker illustrations <laughs> from my life. And maybe you can start imagining some, some darker ones in your own life. We love to boast, Christ City. We love to boast and make ourselves great. But God in his wisdom, he chooses weak and foolish things so that no one can take credit for the glorious salvation that he's at work accomplishing but him. And that's so good for us. It's so good for us because it stops our pride in its tracks. You know what would have happened if, if you contributed to your salvation? If you were the person that were like, hey, God, here's my resume. It's awesome. God's like, oh, yeah, I want you. <laughs> you know, you can really bring something to the table here. If that were the case, your pride would go through the roof. And if your pride goes to the roof, what's going to happen? All the problems that we've been talking about that come from our comparison and boasting over others, they would just fill this church. It wouldn't be good. But God chooses, chooses weak and foolish things to humble us and to stop our boasting in its tracks. Let's look again at this whole section, 27 to 29. Here, this is good news. I want you to just listen to it and, and think about it in relationship to who you are and God's kindness to you. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Amen. But this leads us to the third and the ultimate reason that God chose the weak and the foolish and the nobodies. And the third reason is this. He did it to heal our boasting problem by giving us something so much better to boast about. He did it to heal our boasting problem, to give us something so much better to boast about. And Christ, I want you to see this in the text as well. This is the main reason. God doesn't just delight in shaming people. He brings to nothing our pride in order that we'd see something so, so much better. Look at verses 30 to 31 in our second point, the glory of true boasting. And because of him, all of you, Christ, any, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, this is the great reversal of God's generosity. He chooses people who have nothing in order to give them everything. 
He chooses people who have nothing in order to bless them far more than they would possibly imagine with everything they could never attain on their own. He chooses us and he puts us in Jesus. So that because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. This is so significant, that little line, in Christ Jesus. You'll find it all throughout Paul's writing. And I want you to understand that the miracle of our salvation is this. The miracle of what we believe as Christians, the miracle of the new life that God is breathing in this world, in people like us, is simply that he's taken us and he's put us in Jesus. He's united us in Jesus. He's united you who are nothing (laughs) and your weakness and your foolishness. A person who doesn't have social status, a person who doesn't have the strength to accomplish good in this world for eternity. And he takes you and he puts you in Jesus Christ who has everything, every blessing from God, eternal life within himself, the ability and the power to recreate this world so that it is different than it is today without sin, without death, without darkness, and without despair. He takes you and he puts you in Jesus. Did you see how Paul starts verse 30? It's because of him. It's not because of you. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is such good news. It means that no accomplishment that you have, according to the standards of this world, could commend you to God in and of itself. On the flip side, it also means that no lack of accomplishment, no lack of status could ever keep God's blessings from coming to you in Jesus you've been united to. Because it's about him. And you, by faith in him, are in him. God chooses to bless those who trust in Jesus purely because that's the kind of God he is. Because he's a God of blessing. A God of love. A God characterized by generosity. Look at verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us three things, four things. Wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And look at those four words. To foolish people who think they are wise, like the Corinthians and like us, God gives true wisdom by uniting them with Jesus. To unrighteous people, like the Corinthians, like us, who are so proud of our our moral righteousness, it's not that great. God gives true righteousness by uniting them with Jesus. To nobody people who don't have true honor, God gives infinite status by setting them apart as his, belonging to God. What kind of status does that mean? What kind of status does that mean for us to belong to God? What could compare with belonging to him? And yet this is what we are, sanctified, united with Jesus, a church of God, belonging to him. The people enslaved to the standards of this world that they could never live up to, God redeems them into a relationship with him characterized by blessing, by generosity, and by grace. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Not because we prove we're the best, but because he's a generous God who gives indescribable gifts to those who trust him. 
You know, Tracy, God's generosity, I think, is greater than we realize. I think that if we got it right, if we understood it correctly, it would actually offend us. I think it offends our human sensibilities about proportionality and merit. Have you ever felt that? You know, Jesus himself, he illustrates this for us in the parable that he tells about laborers in a vineyard. And I want to show it to you because I want us to actually see just how radical God's generosity is. So read with me from Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16. And all you need to know is that in this parable, the master is God, the denarius is salvation, and the workers are those that he calls to be part of his kingdom. And Jesus tells this to his followers. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. And going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. So days getting later, He's hiring people later and later who work less and less and less. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day long? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. So he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last. He's doing it on purpose. He wants to show them. (laughs) Beginning with the last and up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came in front of everybody else who worked so much longer, they received a denarius. Here's a denarius. And now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, Hey, these last worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. And Christ said, here are these next lines. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Last. You see, I love this parable. And I love it because it confronts our desire to be treated by God and by others according to merit. It confronts it. It confronts us with the pure generosity of God's grace. In a way where we're like, we just have nothing to boast about. It's all about God's grace. It's not about my effort and my labor. Jesus slams his point home when he says those words in verses 14 to 15. I choose choose to give this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? When we live with comparison, when we live with competition, we begrudge God's generosity. Christ, this parable shows us the goodness of the God we serve one who is generous, one who determines to bless us, not because of what we bring to the table, 
but because of who he is. He heals the vanity and the shame of boasting in ourselves then. And he does it by giving us everything to boast about that we never could get, but giving it to us by grace as a gift that's in Jesus. It's not in ourselves, but that we who are nothing have become everything because we've been loved by this God. So in conclusion, look again at verses 30 to 31. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, in righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christy, God in his mercy and grace, he's made much of us. Sometimes I think that we can, we, we, we people who, who love the gospel, who love the truth of God's grace to sinners like us, I think sometimes we can let the, the arrow kind of move into emphasizing who we are as sinful people, right? I'm nothing. Oh man, I'm just, I'm just a horrible person. But I think actually what grace and what the generosity of God does in this passage is it tips the arrow the other direction. It says, you were nothing, but in Jesus, you are everything. I think we need to hold on to that. There is nobody who's more for you than God himself in his generosity. There is nobody who determines to bless you with more blessings than what God has already determined to bless you with. There is nobody who loves you more, who's called you his own, who loves and cherishes and delights in you than God. Giving to you everything. You are loved, Christ City. You are chosen, Christ City. You are made children of God. And receiving this generosity, it changes us. It changes us. Because where we struggle to celebrate the wins of others, like we talked about at the beginning of the, of the message, boasting in God's grace, receiving that generosity and just living with praise for him, it changes your orientation in your heart. So much so that you look at other people and you're like, man, I'm just so thankful that God has also blessed you in this way. May God help you to continue to have these successes. And I can celebrate them freely. There's no, there's no worry that somehow yours, your worth or, or your victory will infringe upon who I am in Jesus. Because I know who I am in Jesus. A recipient of this grace who's received love and blessing beyond my wildest dreams or my wildest imagination. You know, where we look down on others as beneath us, pushing them away from us, Christ City. And we're boasting and competing. Grace can change you. Boasting in the grace of God changes you because it reminds you that who are you? You're somebody that God has received in, in your nothingness into his kingdom and he's loved you. So why can't I then go and receive anybody else in this world and love them as radically as the God of the universe has loved and received me? You know where we're fragile to criticism? In the places where our whole identity is tied up in our empty opinions of ourselves, boasting in God's grace can change you there too because you're secure. You're secure. You know that you serve a God who sees you as you really are, not the veneer that you hold up to other people, or not the pretend you that you wish everybody would believe in. He sees the real you. But rather than devastate you with his criticism, he's loved you. He's more for you than you can imagine. So you're secure. What criticism could you receive that could crush who you are as a person? 
where we are greedy and selfish, protecting what's ours and worrying that we won't have enough to share with others, boasting in God's grace can change us. Because Christ said he, boasting in God's grace means that we celebrate that it's him who's done it. And the reality was in the first Corinthian church, in the Corinthian church, there were some people that had some means and had some status. Right back when he was talking with us in verse 26, is not all of you were like this. Some of them were. But receiving God's grace causes people like us, even people who have successes to realize all of these successes that I have, they're gifts from God to me. All that I have is a gift of his grace and his love and his mercy to me. So now it's my joy to celebrate that, to, 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 to glory God for it, glorify God for it, and to share with others as I've been given ability. To be generous with others with what God has given to me. You know, where boasting in ourselves causes division and breaks the relationship, boasting in God's graces causes us to be people who are characterized by knowing his love, by being people who heal relationships, who reconcile differences, and draw near together in fellowship and in unity in the church. You see, Christ said, there's only one thing that can heal our competitive, comparative boasting in ourselves. And it's this. It's receiving the grace and the goodness of God in the cross of Jesus. So that all of our empty boasting is replaced by boasting in all of his goodness that's been poured out on us in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would convict us. You show us who we really are. Lord, that you would bring us to a place of humility and receive your grace for what it is. Lord, help us to see that we, of all people in this world, on this Thanksgiving weekend, have more to boast about and celebrate and give thanks for than anyone. Lord, fill our hearts with praise. Lord, fill us with the truth of your word that shows us who we really are in Christ. Lord, help us to worship you with all that we're worth. In Jesus' name, amen.